Hey, everyone, if you want to support the current writer strike that is still going on, please go to the entertainmentcommunityfund.org and make sure when you are making your donation that you select film and television. This is not a strike fund. This is a fund for people who are affected by the strike because, you know, we need to be supportive right now to the people who actually make the art that we discuss, enjoy, and watch. With all that said, if you like what we do, please give us a like, a follow, and a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. We are everywhere. Consider supporting our Patreon. That way we can keep doing what we love, and that's talking about animation. And now, on with the show. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Renegade Animation on the Renegade Pop Culture Podcast Network. My name is Mike. I'll be your host for this evening. Joining me, as always, is the animation guru himself, Cameron. Howdy, howdy. And today we got a pretty fun episode. We've got reviews for Digman, the the new show from The Lonely Island on Comedy Central, and Disney Pixar's Elemental. So first, let's get into Digman, because this was honestly a pretty big surprise. Yeah, so far the adult animation scene has been very good and very fruitful this year. But with other shows, we've had stuff like Royal Crackers, Fired on Mars, the currently running new season of Clone High, which is also really good. And here with Digman... We have what is probably Comedy Central's best new cartoon in forever, since they are obviously ashamed of Fairview and are making it hard for you to actually try and watch it without having to go through illicit meat. I mean, like on paper, Digman, which is starring Andy Samberg as Rip Digman, a archaeologist in a world where archaeologists are celebrities is no longer the hip and the hot individual in town and is basically shamed by the public until he gets a new assistant and goes on some new some adventures to find new artifacts to get his name back on top. With it being Andy Samberg basically playing a parody spoof of, yes, Indiana Jones, but more specifically National Treasure with Nicolas Cage, and him using his Nicolas Cage parody accent. Doesn't that sound like it would get old really fast? Like, even ignoring the creative team behind it. On paper, if I told you that this is just an elongated version of Andy Samberg's Nicolas Cage parody stuff, you would raise your eyebrows, right? Yeah. On paper, this does sound like the series was built around... Sandberg's Nicolas Cage impression, but in hindsight, I'm realizing once I figured out that all of the Lonely Island was behind the like the production of this, I'm like, oh, okay, so I've got nothing to worry about then. And as it turned out, I had nothing to worry about. The show was actually a lot of fun. Exactly. And it goes further than just being a parody of National Treasure and Indiana Jones, where we actually have complex characters, or at least characters with more to them than a lot of adult animated series are given to 
be able to flesh out these characters. I think the biggest part that helps, it's not just a comedy. I mean, it is a comedy and it is very funny, especially with how quick-witted and fast they are with their dialogue jokes. But it's also an action-adventure show. There's There's exploring different continents, different locations, and encountering other rival archaeologists or what have you. So it's not just, oh, it's a workplace comedy. It's something akin to what Bento Box tends to put out a lot of the time. It's refreshing. I didn't know I needed an adult animated sitcom version of DuckTales. I was about to say literally the same thing. It just shows how much it helps to actually stand out and to let your production team expand on a concept or something like that. Because we can have our subjective opinions on like what are good and bad shows everyone's on the same page they want to make a good show and who knows how the end result is going to turn once you see episode one i was just amazed and not just because this is also produced and made by titmouse with the animation looking super vibrant and the characters not having to fall back into that Brickleberry, Paradise PD, pseudo Family Guy look. Mm-hmm. The characters actually look interesting, or they have like a very distinct cartoony nature to them. Everyone in this core cast of characters, they all have unique designs that like pretty much perfectly embody their personalities. Andy Samberg's Rip Digman looks exactly how you think a parody of Nicolas Cage's character from the National Treasure is. But then you've got others like Tim Meadows plays Quail Egan, the sort of the billionaire among all of the archaeologists. And then you have Tim Robinson who plays Swooper, who probably is is one of my favorite characters in the show because he's just so outrageous. I mean, when you got Tim Robinson, expect an outrageous performance. Indeed. And we also have a Clone High alumni with Mitra Johari, who is who voices Saltine, as the current voice for Cleopatra during this new season of Clone High. And then when we get to other actors that are in the main cast, we have like Dale Souls, who plays Agatha Rip's secretary, who we saw last time in Lightyear. And then we have Melissa Fumero, another Brooklyn Nine-Nine alumni alongside Andy Samberg and a few others that are in this show as well as Rip Digman's, well, currently deceased or as the world thinks wife. We'll get into that in a moment. And then we have Guz Khan, who plays Zane Troy the former assistant and now current rival who, yeah, he's a smarmy, smug individual, but he's also sometimes not the most aware person at times. Like when Tim Meadows is quail is just like, and I have the perfect spokesman to sell God. 
<laughs> like a sexy British individual. And Zane is just kind of like standing there like a deer in headlights. And then Quail is like, it's you. Oh, nice. And then for guests, I mean, Andy, the Lonely Island boys, and I'm sure Titmouse, well, just everyone involved, basically pulled up all the punches with making sure to get as many big names as possible. You have Harley Gillen as high score, the little kid that holds the entire archaeologist gala hostage. Then Maya Rudolph voices the AI god-like entity, God, G-A-W-D. Then we have like Claudia O'Doherty, Jason Schwartzman as Roberto, Joe Lo Truglio as Kale Caesar. Kale Caesar was such a fun little side character, just like a parody of crime bosses from that part of the world. Oh yeah, he was a lot of fun. Jane Lynch as Amelia Earhart. I mean, you'll have to watch the episode to see how that works. Kyle Mooney, Daniel Radcliffe as Sebastian, Edgar Wright, Lauren Lapkus, and like Clancy Brown, David Kay, Maurice Lamar, Neil Campbell. They got a lot of people for this show, and it works for the most part. And it's thrilling, it's funny, and it's heartfelt because, yeah, Rip Digman is a washed-up adventurer archaeologist, but he does care about Saltine and his friend. And you understand why he's looking for the Holy Grail, why he would keep that a secret, even though it backfires on him in, I think, Episode 7? when it's revealed. And I think one of my favorite episodes was, what was it? The Mile High Club, where they encounter Amelia Earhart and her airborne colony. And we get to see more about Agatha, Rip's secretary. And she was a delight. I loved her character. She could have easily just been the background noise that you would get with a sassy old secretary that's still around there for reasons unknown. Just jumping off what you said about each of these characters, I like how every one of the main four are given as much time to shine as Rip himself. This episode is kind of perfect for for Agatha. It's like an Agatha and a Swooper episode because you get to learn a little bit about Swooper and his disconnect with his child and no it's not because swooper is a terrible dad it's the reverse of the son being 10 years old but is able to teach as a professor in college who is a neglectful son never has time to connect with his dad that was a very interesting twist it doesn't make sense but it's friggin hilarious i also love the episode where they accidentally destroy the Ten Commandments. Well, it reminds me of that History of the World Part 1 joke where Mel Brooks, where he's just like, where he plays Moses, and he's like, okay, everyone, we have 15 commandments here. And it's all etched in, and then one of them drops. (laughs) And he's like, now we have Ten Commandments. (laughs) And the fact that they go all the way to find a secret Yeti village, only for it to be revealed that the main Yeti village, where the leader is voiced by Clancy Brown, are anti-abortionists. The twists that this show takes to catch you off guard with its comedy is 
delightful. You can tell that this team knew what they were doing and planned out how the humor was going to be. I described the first five minutes of the pilot as just punching you in the face with with jokes because they go on a pretty like immediate stretch of just like every second there's like a new joke that just hits you. That's kind of the rapid pace of the show, but it does still slow down for for certain character beats. If you're wondering what kind of humor it is, it's it's definitely got some physical comedy. It has some parody gags like Swooper doing a whole gondola training sequence in the vein of Top Gun. But it's definitely dialogue-driven, where they'll just constantly throw jokes at you through what the characters say to one another. And that helps when Neil Campbell and Paul Rust, who are you know well-known for Comedy Bang Bang and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, are creative with their humor. Because if you've seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine, very funny show. And I mean, I just don't have much else to say. It was just like a good eight episodes. The animation was stylized and full of vigor and action. And the theme song music by Trevor Rabin. What a cool, epic theme to have. A lot of times, and you hear this throughout a lot of animation production, like people will say, yeah, we had a theme song, but we had to cut it out because they want you to keep watching the show no matter what. And that means like skipping through the opening. Unless I just do not like the opening, I don't mind sitting through them. I like the opening sequence of this. I love how towards the end, you actually get to see the characters like actually playing the theme. It's so good. Again, with the comparison to DuckTales, it's like, here's this epic DuckTales-style theme song for a very silly show. And not that the rest of the music was not as memorable by Matthew Compton, but that theme song, in a world where we are getting like fewer and fewer theme songs, I'm so happy that we got one that's just catchy as heck. This is one of those shows that makes you fall in love with animation again because it's like oh here's a adult animated comedy series who knows how this will turn out and then you watch it and it's just like oh man that was fun on a bun yeah it's currently only has eight episodes and it's getting renewed for a second season which i'm so happy to hear that because i think comedy central is very much in a state of our channel is dying and we need to make other shows, like actually spend the money to make other shows. Cable in general is in kind of a state of limbo right now. So any success story like this is definitely good to hear. Cable and now streaming are very much in a weird, awkward tango because streaming was like, we're going to take you over and Everyone's going to cut the cord. And then this year and last year, we're finally seeing the streaming bubble pop. And now everyone's like, well, I guess we now have to find a symbiotic relationship to make this work. I mean, granted, it's a little frustrating that Digman is not available on Paramount Plus, 
which you think it would be because it's a Comedy Central show and Comedy Central has all their stuff on Paramount Plus. But I assume it's going to show up there at some point in the next month or so. We'll have to see. I'm I'm not sure exactly what is holding them back. Maybe some like rights, but I'm sure they'll figure all of that out eventually. Oh, I'm sure it's some copyright stuff and something in our contract saying, hey, don't just shove our stuff onto your streaming service. Give us time and soak in some of those on-demand numbers and airtime numbers. So, well, just have to see, but I'm absolutely down for more Dig Man. It seems to be going into a more story-driven point, but we'll have to see it ends on a cliffhanger. And now we talk about... What shouldn't have been one of the most exhausting films to talk about, and this is saying something because we are recording this the day after the opening weekend of so many movies. So many movies that have a lot of baggage connected to them. Since we are going to talk about Elemental, the new Pixar Disney film that, well, before we get to that... Let's talk about the short that played with Carl's date. The, I'm going to just assume last up related shorts. And one of the last projects where we get to hear the late, great Ed Asner as Carl. This was sweet. We talked about Doug Day's previous episode. This is like one of those kind of stray segments of that little series. But this is just a really sweet little, uh, short about Carl finally moving, getting over Ellie, but giving himself the opportunity to find love again. And it's also funny timing with the release of this short because there was a subplot in the second season, well, now the the final season of Human Resources, the spinoff to Big Mouth, that was literally about a character dealing with the loss of his wife and letting all of that go to start living again, to start dating again and what have you. And the conflict of interest between him and his daughter, where his daughter feels like he's betraying his wife and her mother because of him wanting to date again. And here that's Carl's arc basically throughout this whole short where he's stressed out about not knowing how to feel about a date because Ellie was his one and true love. And it's sweet to see him stress himself out and overthink the situation of just like, hey, you're not abandoning Ellie. You're not betraying her trust or anything. Life goes on and... You deserve to find happiness, to have closure with that thought. And I do wish we got to see the woman in question that Carl is so worried about this whole date thing with. I like the premise. I just wish they either showed us significant other in question. But who knows? They probably just had the house location and then... Carl and Doug. And Doug is, as usual, very funny. However you feel about them making this animated spinoff series of shorts from Up, 
Doug is still going to be Doug. And it does end on a sweet note. I kind of forgave my misgivings with it because of how it ends and how sweet it is. And of course, that freaking theme song, like tune to Up, that hits you in the heart every single time. You think you get tired of it because it's the same one Disney likes to use for some of their marketing. But it never quite stops being like that emotional punch in the heart. <laughs> I think that's exactly why they, they keep using it. Because as repetitive as it can be, they, like, they, they know exactly which buttons to push. That's the emotional connection of it all. And then we get to Elemental, which let's just get some of these comments out of the way first one if you would like to discuss this movie with mike or i go see it first form an opinion leave all preconceived notions at the door like you should with every movie that you go see no matter if you've heard it's good or bad or somewhere in between two i don't know what it is about mario and elemental but i have never seen quite a chaotic discussion and arguments be had for films of this year. <laughs> There's nothing controversial about them. They don't fully tackle controversial topics or topics that should be considered controversial. But instead of like a live action film or like a drama or something, everyone is up in arms about these two animated films. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just what on earth is going on with y'all sometimes? Why can't y'all be like the Annecy Animation Film Festival or the Animation is Film Festival crowds where y'all can just be better? <laughs> Seriously. Because, yes, I want Pixar to branch out and do more experimental things. I like obviously have my pros and cons with Elemental. I still overall very much enjoyed it. But some of the comments I see, and it's not for the people who didn't like this film or just thought it was okay. That's fine. There are definitely things to talk about this movie where we are going to bring those stuff up. But the fact that it's not doing well, which could be a combination of one, June is so bloated with animated films. Like, you start the month with Across the Spider-Verse, then you get Elemental, and then at the end of the month, you get Nimona and Ruby Gilman, which is setting up itself to not be doing well, since it's also releasing around the same time as Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I try to talk with a few people and to figure out where they could have delayed some of these movies. I pushed them into the next month or a month that isn't so crowded, but there's like a real lose-lose situation here. Something yeah. with the marketing with Elemental, it was obviously not connecting with people. I think Pixar and Disney have a history of hiding what their movie's about for a good reason, because you want to be surprised. But I also think it's one of those weird cases where their marketing kind of backfires of hiding because obviously not knowing everything has not hurt a company like illumination with their marketing and such and so on. 
But something about the more vagueness of what this elemental is about, which is this world of air, fire, earth, and water entities that live with one another. And we follow this young couple, Ember and Wade. Ember being a fire elemental voiced by Leia Lewis and Wade, a water elemental voiced by Mamadou Athi who start to have this crush with one another. He is unintentionally, but just kind of doing his job, attempting to shut down Ember's father's convenience store thing. And then shenanigans ensue. They stop the shutdown. Something else happens. And then this movie's a rom-com. It isn't this grand world-ending movie. It's a very intimate and personal movie there's nothing world ending about it and i'm wondering if that kind of caught people off guard because i mean as we all know this elemental premiered at the con film festival which got very mixed reviews even though those reviews at the time were pretty much just like seven people talking about the movie Mm -hmm. and while the reviews have gotten more positive they're still pretty mixed this movie may have also just released at the wrong festival. Like depending on when this was done, it probably should have done something like South by Southwest or waited until the Annecy film festival to premiere there. Because this is just the thing to talk to consider when you see reactions and reviews coming from certain festivals, read the room. And I don't mean like that in like how, dismissive it is i mean it in the sense that each film festival is going to have a wildly different crowd and critics there so for this film this crowd pleaser to hit the con film festival which is mostly like the beginning of the art of the year or you know other various snooty comments i could make about it was probably not the best idea not to say that crowd pleasers have never done well at the Cannes Film Festival, but again, something like Top Gun Maverick did well because that was the part of that film's marketing was constantly saying and repeating, you have to go to a cinema to see this movie. You have to go to a cinema to see this movie. It's cinema. It's art. It's made for the big screen. It's made for the people who love the theater. Here's the weird part as to why Elemental didn't connect with people at Con. Remember how we mentioned a while back that first two Shrek films premiered at Con, and those seemed to go over well? Yeah, well, it's like, for back then, Shrek was refreshing and new. And Pixar was still, like, in their growing phase. So they were still trying out different things, because... Monsters, Inc. came out around the same time as the first Shrek film. Yep. And there's also just the fact that Disney has basically trained everyone to not go see their movies in theaters, or at least see a few of them. But it's mostly this thing will show up in a few months on Disney+. Plus. You can wait until then, which is frustrating as heck. Because you know 
none of the directors wanted to put their movies on Disney Plus, but for some reason, Pixar was the scapegoat of, oh, we don't have enough content for Disney Plus. Let's throw Soul. Let's throw Luca. Let's throw Turning Red on there. And by that point, everyone's just like, well, why are you releasing Lightyear in theaters? Shouldn't you just throw it on Disney Plus? Like, yeah, you can argue, well, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 is doing well. Yeah, but that movie got saved by word of mouth, mm-hmm. which is what I'm thinking word of mouth is going to save Elemental to not be the biggest failure in Pixar's life. But the fact that it's not doing well is due to a multitude of reasons and not just has to do with the movie quality it's, itself. That's pretty much why I think its opening weekend was lackluster, but why I'm pretty confident that could have a pretty decent holes in the next couple weeks. We'll just have to see because July is basically going to be the month of Barbie. <laughs> yeah, basically. And like going to movies is expensive, no matter how many season pass or movie pass or whatever stuff you can make. It's just pricey to go see a movie. And unfortunately, with people being trained to go see only the familiar, for the most part, there are definitely movies this year that were should have been big IP brand synergy stuff, or like were not, especially with The Flash and Ant-Man Quantumania dying at the box office. But we should talk about the movie itself. So Elemental, I liked this movie. It's not my favorite Pixar I don't think it will be in my top 10 by the end of the year, depending on what else we are going to get via the big studios or the indie foreign releases. But I do like it. I have issues with it. But what did you think about the movie? I adored this movie. No, it's not like top tier Pixar, but and like you said, it probably won't end up in my top 10 either, but I think the stuff that works, the important stuff, the relationship between Wade and Ember, the voice cast is all great. The animation is spectacular, despite comments from the peanut gallery. Score is amazing. It has its problems, and we will get into that. But I think the important stuff, like the story and the characters, that left a strong enough impact on me enough that I saw this movie twice and had a great time with both viewings. I think I'm not as positive as you are about the movie. I mean, I'm still very positive with it, but I can only go off of what I remember watching and I only saw it once yesterday. So let's talk about the animation first, because while we can always debate and question why this movie needed to cost $200 million. A lot of the times when you see that budget, it can be a multitude of reasons. It could be star power. It could be because of the current economy areas of like where the studio is. Sometimes it could very well be the fact that they are using new animation tools and styles that while not apparent across the Spider-Verse are still 
innovating how characters are in worlds are made within the world of theatrical animation. And this is nothing new for Pixar. A lot of their marketing can sometimes be all about, hey, what new animation challenge are we overcoming? And we see this with like Monsters, Inc. Soli's fur tech was very much the biggest deal when that film was coming out. Yep. The Incredibles with how they cracked the human design problem that animated films were suffering from that at that point in time. There was the hair physics for Brave. And then Soul had a lot of new interesting animation styles through CGI and such to work with. And Luca to now have had smaller updates and upgrades and a different design philosophy. But there's always something going on with animation. Don't just dismiss it because it's not pulling off what TMNT Mutant Mayhems or Across the Spider-Verse is doing with its stylized CGI work being done. And that's just how things are. Yeah. And I'm not saying that this doesn't have familiar elements to previous Pixar films on the visual level. But to say that it's just the same kind of movie look-wise is ignoring what goes on behind the camera. And of course, that doesn't mean that it saves the movie from whatever. To be clear, that's not it at all. I'm just saying there's something more impressive than what a lot of people are willing to give it credit for. For example, I think the designs of the characters in this movie are actually pretty unique in that if I remember correctly, I read an interview somewhere that this is like one of the first times that character models have been created without any sort of skeleton. And you can see that pretty clearly with like the water people like Wade and and all of his family. What was the challenge here was to make these people move because they were going to just pretty much try and keep the same CGI model rigging stuff that they normally do. But they couldn't because it just wasn't looking as good as they, the director, Peter Son, was looking for. He wanted the elemental people to feel and move like the elements. And you see that through like how the air elemental people can get hit by stuff. And the only thing that is disappointing to them is that their clothes can fall off. <laughs> like that one guy who got hit by a bus and he's just like, Oh, my new sweater or how earth elementals could pretty much be covered by dirt and grass and foliage. But the most impressive parts are to me with Wade and Ember. Mm -hmm. They don't have traditional body rigging and modeling and such. They, this is what one of the heads of Pixar's production team were talked about recently on Twitter or not recently, but like a few months ago was how they're using more volumetric animation this time around. That's why when like water hits Ember or her father, there's actually like fire missing there. It's not just, Oh, they ripped a quarter piece off of a round head. And then they had to like make it fill back up 
naturally. And Wade, it's just like a blobby water person who is trying to keep that human shape together, but is absolutely not, feels like he's about to metaphorically and literally pry himself apart. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I think the point where the animation really hit for me was when they were on the beach and you see Ember slowly sinking into the sand as the sand around her turns to glass and you see like the light of the fire that she is made of dim I was literally moving around in my seat trying to look around and possibly looking around the character model wondering like how the heck did y'all do that that scene was certainly impactful like it's perfect for that character too because it's, it's a moment where like she feels like defeated def- and deflated and the animation really supports her emotional state in that scene and with wade just the fact like he can stretch or shrink or absorb more water and it doesn't look like a traditional character model is amazing and just how he was able to like move around and just like even like the normal movements of like talking and his mouth i was just like that is so cool i have no idea how y'all made that work i want to see like a visual breakdown of how they make some of these characters work same i will say the earth elementals weren't as impressive as the others but i liked how they committed to the bit for the most part for every elemental. I think another animation moment that really got me was when they were playing the crying game, which <laughs> it the exact opposite of making someone cry, you try not to cry. When Wade confesses to Ember and you see that kind of moment where it looks like there's, how to explain it? Like this lovely 2D glow around the characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know what you're referring to. It's like, I wish the movie looked more like that in some regards. Because a lot of the like texture work and physics and what have you are definitely mostly the same stuff. Even though, again, like I've said, there's still plenty of innovation and growing and upgrading tools and technology. And so that's used for these films. And then we get to the world building. And a lot of this was based off of Peter Soane's history and growing up as an immigrant to the States and how his family had to deal with discrimination, xenophobia, and the challenges of building up a life in a new country when there's just so much that can be put against you because of your race. You can see that definitely here with how fire people are treated, but the problem for me comes with how they execute it. It's not that it's too subtle or something. It's very blunt with what the discrimination on display with certain characters and certain moments, like with the when Ember went to see Wade's family and such, there's Harold, the uncle, who says, it's like, you speak so fluently. And it's just like, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's 
Like he didn't mean anything by it, but it's just, you know, the ignorance on display. It's that microaggression that like you don't really recognize is wrong, but it's just kind of something that that just like comes out of you. And Ember definitely bites back at that saying like, well, yeah, we both speak the same language for most of our lives. Like my problem isn't the fact that it wants to tackle racism. There are a lot of Pixar and Disney films that do tackle discrimination, especially with films like Zootopia and what have you. The problem is the film Elementals metaphor also wants to be about emotion. Like Wade is a water elemental. So that means he's free flowing and is very open to being honest and upfront with people where Ember fire is rage and anger. And she literally changes her flame depending on her mood and her emotions. You think they were mixing metaphors a little too much? Yes. I think they should have picked one or the other, or this movie needed another year to make sure this worked because the current state of how many films come out every year from Pixar or Disney, where they, you know, switch out either two Pixar films, two Disney films, or two Disney films, one Pixar film, or the case with this year, one Pixar film and one Disney film. I think the R&D and the pre-production are getting hurt. Or maybe there's just something I'm missing from how they wanted to portray discrimination and emotion. But I think it worked more for emotions than the discrimination angle. But that's also because Disney is not going to pull a The Hate You Give or a Black Klansman out of their hats per se they're not going to actually dive into the the systemic issues because they don't want to alienate everyone they want everyone to still think they're the friendly happy family company that's always been the problem with trying to please everyone you you end up offending someone because i've seen people talk about this this is usually the biggest hang-up people have it's like either be about emotions or about the race angle. Don't try to be both, or you needed to do better with trying to be both. Because the xenophobia angle is becomes like text, but then subtext, and then alludes to those kind of thoughts and commentary. What also doesn't help is that Elemental's world is... I'm not going to say it's badly put together. I think... For the world itself is very creative. It's the cultural aspect of how they want to portray the different elements. Because this is another thing about Disney. I didn't start noticing this until Raya and the Last Dragon. Where they like to do a little hot pot. Where they put every culture in. And... And once again, I've talked to a few critics about this where I was not very sure what angle they were going for unless they were just going for a universal angle of like discrimination and such. But you can tell from the fire elemental cultures that there's very much multiple different cultures at play. And I don't think that helps with the world building. All that much. Seems a bit too vague 
at least with with like the fire people because because I'm a little bit familiar with Peter Stone's background, you could interpret them as probably more predominantly Korean, but also just vaguely Asian in some regards. Well, it's not just that. There's Persian elements to it. There's vibes of Asia, like Italians, Irish. Yeah, so it's just like doing this will alienate people because that's what a lot of critics had to say about Ray and the Last Dragon. Like, whatever you thought about the movie, the fact that it just hodgepodge and chimera morphed a bunch of different cultures into one was not a good look per se because it was just like oh i you'll feel represented but then it's just like you're sitting there nitpicking the aspect of like well that's not it that's not it that's not it (laughs) i think what turning red did works better than this is the more specific that movie was like culturally the more universal May's actual arc became. It's weird how it works out that way, but it's honestly the truth. Well, it's just like funny enough with Elemental's release during Annecy, Disney announced a new TV series, Primo, which also got everyone on Twitter and the internet harassing and sending death threats and telling people to kill themselves because of it's like, oh, this isn't accurate when it's just like, it's meant to be this one specific direction and depiction of Latin Americans. It's not meant to be everything else. If you're one of those animation fans that harassed the people working on the new show, screw you. (laughs) Like if your thought of like not caring for the first impression is to harass people who worked on the show, you're scum. You're not animation fans if you're going to if you're going to treat people as less than just because things aren't catered to you. I felt like when I was watching this movie, it worked better as a rom-com because the team has cited stuff like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and my favorite rom-com, Moonstruck, as inspirations for this film. And that's when I liked the movie the most, when it was focusing on the rom-com elements, the slice-of-life portions. I think those are when the movie is at its brightest. It's when it tries to tackle everything else is when it starts to fumble. It makes me understand why some people are not on this film's level, even though I think some of it can be a bit underwhelming, which... Do not go after the people we're about to reference here. But you said, Mike, that these were fresh, first-time writers for theatrical animation. As far as I know, this was was their feature film debut. And that makes sense. Listen, writing a movie is hard. You spend four or so years making one of these movies, and... You probably won't notice the situation at hand until you actually see it. And it's just like, oh, I would have done that differently or something like that. I mean, that's happened before. What what was it? That Lego Ninjago movie that came out in 2017? Yep. Like first time people working on that film. And yeah, the film wasn't all that strong. But even with whether they're new people or veterans, 
the execution here wasn't as good as I felt like it could have been. But that's just me. Depending on who you follow on Twitter, like in the critic circles, some will just be like, oh, it's fine. But others will be like, I feel seen and I connected with this movie on a deeply, deeply emotional level. And I still connected with the movie. I understand the personal dilemma of Ember and Wade's dynamic, like their love is forbidden and also Ember's conflict of, yeah, I want to go do this thing, but I don't want to disappoint my parents and how everything in the world can be solved if you just communicate, which a lot of times these characters don't do. (laughs) I mean, that's just because if they did, we'd have no movie. (laughs) Exactly. But the writing to me was the weakest part, even though there are some moments that are just really good. But I mean, like, what other aspects did you like about this movie? Since you were the one to see it twice, you still have like a fresher perspective about it. I will say most of the stuff that I liked are the relationships. We talked enough about the romance between Ember and Wade, but I also really enjoyed the relationship that Ember had with her parents. Specifically how much Ember looked up to her father, how she thought for the longest time that her dream was to take over the shop, but getting to getting to experience life outside of her bubble kind of made her realize she had other ambitions and that she spent too long focusing on everyone else and not herself. And I think that's something that a lot of us can relate to. Exactly. And the voice cast also pulls off some great performances. I loved Leia and Mamadou's performances. I thought they worked off each other very well. And I liked Ronnie Del Carmen as Bernie Lumen, the father figure. And I liked Shyla Omi, who was Cinder Lumen, the mother. By the way, I loved the little detail of the fire elementals where it looks like their eyes were 2D animated. And like, yeah. like they took the aspect of the Spider-Verse movies where they draw 2D on the CGI bodies. But here, it's like the eyes and the mouths were 2D, which they weren't. You can tell that it was still CGI, but just the way that they were designed looked like 2D on CGI models. And we also have like Wendy McClendon Covey as Gail Cumulus as the one major air elemental in a film. Brooke Ripple, Wade's mom, is voiced by Catherine O'Hara. And I thought she did a delightful, very motherly performance. She was a riot. And Mason Wertheimer, who plays Claude, the, the little earth elemental kid. I don't know what his point in the movie was. He was barely in the movie, and I felt like he was supposed to be in there more, but all he does is have that one joke of growing a flower out of his armpit, ripping it out, where it obviously hurts him to give to Ember because he's crushing on her. But like I thought he did a good job for that role. Harold, is the uncle, is voiced by Ronabir Lahiri. We have Wilma Bonnet. Joe Para plays Fern Grouchwood, the Nick Offerman-looking Earth Elemental, who sits in that tiny, cramped office space, who has the most 
unenergized performance of the cast, but on purpose. Mm-hmm. And we have like Matthew Yang King, who does Alan Ripple, the other uncle. We have like Ben Morris, Innocent Ika Kitty, uh, Jonathan Adams, and like a lot of good people on here. There's like Fred Tadashore, Scott Minville, Asaf Cohen, Jessica DeSico, Secunda Wood, Terry Douglas, Alicia Mulali as like additional voices and such. It's a good voice cast. I like the more grounded world, even though it's very much a world of elemental people. <laughs> yeah. But the story itself is grounded. There's no villain. It's the conflict of each of the characters you're dealing with. And then this commentary on basically how the city infrastructure needs to really be taken care of so nonsense like this doesn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. I like the fact that there wasn't really a villain because A, it gave more room for more grounded character interactions and also say what you will about the third act and how it kind of becomes a little bit of not necessarily world ending but you know there is a disaster that happens because of poor city infrastructure it's not like some big villain that they have to take down it's like it's something still relatively grounded for these characters you can argue that the discrimination angle is there too because of you know, the history of gentrification and how that part of, of the city was neglected because of reason that you can probably put two and two together. And the reason why there's like a fire town where there's basically rarely other fire characters in the other parts of the city. It's touching. I liked the ending per se. Just the, the thing that happens to Wade is very funny. I like that it does end... On the fact that, yeah, Ember doesn't run the store. They actually get other characters to run the store. And Ember and Wade get to go on like an adventure across the world or to another city to, for this job opportunity for Ember, which he was ready and willing to sacrifice leaving the city for. I think it works throughout the whole movie, like the interactions, the chemistry, the story for the most part. It just fumbles some of the other like story and world building and thematic details, but I still like this movie. I liked it more than the Mario movie, which I still liked, but if I had to pick and choose, I'd rather see elemental again. I definitely have elemental above the Mario movie. I think right now this is like, I call it bottom of the top where it's like, this movie is great. I do recommend it, but it is not secure in like my top 10 or anything like that. I think another problem is it's not very child-friendly, which in a lot of ways is fine. I think that's a pretty good thing. But it was interesting to hear some people talk about how they saw children were bored because it wasn't just like a straight-up comedy and such. And like this movie has its funny moments. Anytime Wade is overly emotional is hilarious just because he'll get overly emotional over the most minor things that he's just like, Oh my God, that's so beautiful. And then he starts crying buckets of tears. That security guard in front of the building that Wade's family lives in. The whole conflict between him and Ember's mother. 
and just how it ends is so funny. It was just interesting to hear that children were more like, eh, I don't know if I want to sit here and watch a rom-com. I want to watch something that will keep my short attention span focused, which is why like a lot of films like the Super Mario Brothers movie and Across the Spider-Verse, among many other reasons why Across the Spider-Verse is connecting with a lot of people. Right. Like, invested because as much as I love Pixar, I'm always going to be rooting for them. I'm going to be rooting for every animation studio to do well in this broken industry that they are currently having to deal with right now. But they are not the big dog in the park anymore. And other studios are aware of this and are stepping up their game. And being just good, unfortunately, is not good enough. Yeah, and to repeat something I said on Twitter earlier, when it comes to original films, I think what audiences are starting to figure out now is that just being original isn't enough anymore. You have to come out swinging with a strong creative vision and the guts to pull it off. Now, I don't know if Disney has it in them to do something like this, but everything everywhere all at once from last year is probably one of the best examples of exactly what I described. An original movie that had a very strong creative vision that audiences connected with pretty much from the moment it premiered in theaters to right up until award season. More so than most, you need to have a good story. That's why people have dropped off of the Marvel films. The storytelling isn't that great. And that's why people returned for Across the Spider-Verse and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Because they were pulled in by the stories. Because they were compelling, heartfelt, heartbreaking. Some people may just find... Elemental, not a very compelling film on top of everything else of like Disney telling people that it's okay to not go to the theaters for our films anymore, which is a very big mistake. It's a shame. I do recommend watching this movie, but I understand if you want to wait to go see it. I just want it to do well. So Pixar isn't having to kick anyone else off the company because I mean, let's just, be honest here it sucks that disney is having to lay off so many people including the guy who directed lightyear when it's like it's not his fault well it's not all their faults it like these higher ups screwed over the name and quality of pixar and i think it is time to let pete doctor or whoever to take full reign and say hey we're going to go a little further we might alienate some audiences but we will probably get more people to connect with our movies. The last thing I want would be for Pixar or I guess the top brass at Disney to learn the wrong lesson from Elemental's underperformance. Yeah, because I mean, this the whole industry is built off of lessons like that, where they're like, oh, we're going to do what they did, but do none of the things that actually made it work. It's like, oh, they used this piece of technology. So that means people will go see our movie because we use that piece of technology. And it's like, no, that's not what's going to work. (laughs) 
People come for stories. That's why people dropped off of Disney during the early to mid-2000s because their storytelling game was not up to par. That's why people turned to Pixar. And DreamWorks, while not making consistently good movies, were offering something that Disney was not able to provide. With the rare exception, of course, but still. We just live in a tumultuous, tough time right now of... Everyone needs to step up their game, but the companies need to let these people, let these teams craft these incredible experiences. Like even Puss in Boots' Last Wish, it's based off of a sequel of a long-running franchise that hasn't had a new movie in almost two decades, and then won people over because, not just because of the animation, but because of the story. Spider-Verse literally broke the wall down to say, hey, you don't need to make traditional movies anymore. I hope Elemental still does well. I still recommend it, but that's really all I have to say. Like, go see it if you want. I hope more people do, and definitely get, like, the art book and such. I think reading the art books for these films help bring more context to see what they were going for with these movies. Even if the end product doesn't turn out as well. If you want to know more about what went on behind the scenes, definitely pick up the art book, listen or watch as many interviews as you can find. If there is a like sort of behind the scenes documentary for this movie, I would love to check it out. Yeah, as long as that documentary isn't like combed over by Disney because they're like, oh, we don't want people to know that. Kind of like how what happened with the, what was it called? The hot box documentary about the original vision of what then became the emperor's new groove oh yep because like disney does not want you to see that documentary but it's the internet it's going to be around no matter what you try (laughs) go to see this movie if you want to see it we both are at least fairly positive and just make up your own mind yeah i mean like if you disagree with us cool if you agree with us cool just Go see the movie. That's basically my big thing of you need to go see the movie or watch the show to have an opinion or a conversation about it. I don't want to hear preconceived notions or you basing your opinion off of what someone else said. Exactly. That's it for this episode. Next time, we'll have to see what happens because we're kind of stuck in a in-between area of some shows that are wrapping up, but they don't have all their episodes out yet. And Namona and Ruby Gilman will not be out until the 30th. We'll come up with something. But yeah. until then, Cameron, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Cam's Eye View. Hopefully other social media platforms, but I'll make sure to let y'all know. I have a website called camseyeview.biz where I review animated films and shows from around the world called The Other Side of Animation. I also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash camsideview. That's where you can find me. And you guys can find me on Twitter and various social media at CaptainK42. You can check out my quick thoughts on letterbox.com slash CoachK42. You can follow Renegade Pop Culture on Facebook and Twitter at RenPopCulture. You can also find us on YouTube, on Podchaser. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash RenegadePopCulture. Listen to all of our podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., And last but not least, everything can be found at renegadepopculture.com. Need an escape? So do we. That'll do it for this episode of Renegade Animation. We will catch you guys later. Peace out.